Hey, good afternoon, folks. Coming up is my interview with Laura Cayouette, one of the great actresses of our time. You've seen her in several movies, great ones like Django Unchained, Enemy of the State, Kill Bill, and Now You See Me. She's been in several TV shows. She was in an episode of Friends. She's also a great director, a great activist. So many stories coming up that you'll hear about Laura and her life, including her times with a good friend of hers named Richard Dreyfus and her time around Quentin Tarantino in the movies that Quentin directed alongside of her, directed her in, and movie parts that he wrote for her. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this segment with Laura Cayouette. Okay, now next on the tee with me is one of my all-time favorite actors, Laura Cayouette. We all know her from movies like Django Unchained, Enemy of the State, Kill Bill, and Now You See Me and her appearances on TV shows like JAG, Hot Date, and Friends. She was born in Washington, D.C. and grew up in Maryland. She graduated from the University of Maryland College Park with her B.A. in English. She also earned her master's degree in creative writing and English literature. She studied at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York before moving to L.A. in 1992 and out there studying at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. She's written eight books, including No Small Parts, an actor's guide to turning minutes into moments and moments into a career. She's been a director, a local New Orleans activist, a dancer with the New Orleans Pussyfooters, and I'm very excited she is with me here tonight on Next on the T. Hey, Laura, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, that's quite an intro. (laughs) (laughs) Glad you liked it. You've done a lot of things. Well, I, I wear a lot of hats, so it's hard to sum me up. Laura, I know you've moved around a lot, and I'm a Northeast guy. I'm from Pittsburgh. I've lived all across the Southeast and in Florida, Tennessee. I've lived up in Boston, now in Georgia. So I'm curious to hear your story. First of all, how does a Maryland girl with her B.A. in English decide to get her master's degree at South Alabama? <laughs> um. Well, I never knew I was going to be an actor, so that part came later. Um, But when I was starting my life and career as a professor slash author, which is what I thought I was going to be when I grew up, um, I always knew that the first book I would ever write was going to be uh, Lemonade Farm, a novel based on um, my experiences as a child living in a commune in 1976. And so I wanted to earn the right to be good enough to be the one to tell that story. So that's why I wanted to get a master's degree. And I wanted to go to a university where the oral tradition was alive and well in that region so that even the bad writers would be good storytellers. So I chose University of South Alabama because at the time they were one of maybe 25 universities in the country that offered a master's in creative writing. And they were located in the South where the oral tradition is very much alive. And so I thought, yeah, even the bad students in in my classes will be good storytellers. And they were, and that pushes me. I, I like to always surround myself with people who are, who already have what I'm looking for. Let's take one of those stories a little bit further. 11 years old, 1976. You're living in a collective with other children and adults. That's a pretty unique thing for someone 11 years old to experience. Yeah, I turned 12 during that year. And and um, so 11 sounds so much younger than 12. I don't know why. 
But yeah, I turned 12 very quickly after we moved there. And so it's mostly those those experiences of a 12-year-old girl, which is a very much a coming of age time and, you know, figuring out the whole world and your body and boys and what, you know, the whole thing, all of it. And doing that within the context of this environment that was so unique, um, not just in, in, you know, Maryland or in the countryside, but just in general, you know, uh, living in a collective environment is very unique. I've heard you say there's an old Jewish saying that when a person dies, a library is burned. Talk about the, how that has driven you to share so much of your life experience. You know, the person who told me that was Richard Dreyfus, and he's kind of inspirational in that way because he he makes sure that his stories are told, even if it's just around the fire. And um, and he has been very instrumental in helping me make sure that my stories are told. Uh, not only did he write the foreword for No Small Parts, but he um, he actually sponsored me to go to writer's boot camp and learn about script writing. And uh, I went there for a six-week program and did very well in it. And so he ended up sponsoring me again for the two-year program. So, you know, he's always been extremely supportive of my storytelling. And so it's right that I heard that statement from him. <laughs> But I feel, I, I guess I, at the end of the day, I feel like, you know, people come up to me and they say, oh, you should write a book about this. Or you, oh my God, this most amazing thing happened to me. You should tell that story. And I'm always like, that's your story. That's your story to tell. And I feel like people think that if they don't know how to be a good writer, then they can't tell their stories. They can't, um, you know, make them a thing, a book or a screenplay or a song or whatever, a painting. And and that's actually one reason that I wrote my eighth book, um, Writing Unblocked, how I went from writing one book in 20 years to five books in four years. Because when I figured out th- th- that everything I needed to know about writing a book, I didn't learn in my getting my degree in creative writing. I learned how to write, but I didn't learn how to make a book out of my thoughts, you know? And and it is a different thing. And so people are right to be worried that they don't know how to tell a story, but they shouldn't worry about not knowing how to write. You can tell your stories a variety of ways. And in Writing Unblocked, I show a way to organize your thoughts and a way to get your story in order so that you can tell your story. But it it doesn't matter whether you tell it through screenwriting or through a novel or through um, a painting or a song or whatever, however you tell your stories. It just matters more that you live out loud, you know, tell your stories, record them somehow. Laura, one of the many things that I admire about you is every time I see a picture of you or things that you post or things that you may put out on social media, it's it, you always seem to have a smile on your face or, or you're laughing or, or you're dancing around at Mardi Gras. Is this a great time in your life? Oh, gosh. You know, social media is funny that way because, of course, um, COVID has been horrifying for me. It's been really rough on me. And so I guess that's an inaccurate picture of some of, of what I've gone through in the last few years. You know, I at my industry shut down, so there was very little work, and that was very scary. And and now we're on strike, so, again, scary. Um, 
You know, I think what the bottom line is, is that there's always times in your life where things are hard or crap or, you know, not not going the way you hoped or frustrating or whatever. But it doesn't matter what day or what moment or whatever. There's always going to be something positive as well. There's always some silver lining to every cloud. I hate to sound like a, you know, stereotype, but but it, stereotypes are there for a reason. They they capture a group of thoughts that are sometimes true and and often true. And so my mom is one of those people who, you know, if she if she sees a room full of poop, she's like, well, there must be a pony here somewhere, you know. <laughs> she always sees things from such a point of positivity. And and I remember as a teenager being so frustrated with that thinking, lady, do you not see how horrible everything is? And I'm so glad that I didn't win that argument. Because you know, obviously she's just as right as I am. You can focus on how how everything is all the way horrible and, oh my God, it's so horrible. And why doesn't she see how horrible it is? Or you could be her and focus on the positive and think, why is she caught up in that? She could be focusing on this, you know? And my adulthood has been about trying to find that balance between, you know, that glass half full, glass half empty kind of thinking what to focus on when and how to absorb the moments where it's harder to focus on positive thoughts. But I think social media for me has been a way to, to kind of remember that, you know, whether it's my good morning posts of fabulous, you know, things around my city or um, whether I'm doing a throwback Thursday to some, you know, moment of, of my early career or whatever, you know, all those things are like reminders of, yeah, this is a good day. This day is all right, you know. <laughs> when you look back, did you have that struggling actor period, you know, waiting the tables, not sure if you were going to make the rent money and going through the questioning whether you, you made the right decision to, to try to be an actor? Did you go through all of those stereotypical things? Well, a, a little differently than most people and and probably mostly because I wasn't I wasn't a person who knew that I was going to be an actor my whole life or that dreamed of being an actor my whole life. And so I have a multitude of degrees. So my fallback job is teaching college. So that's a little different because, you know, I think, like you said, most people, when they run into trouble, they have to wait tables or they can, you know, choose any number of, of other ways to make money quickly on a schedule that won't interfere with auditions. And for me, I was able to tutor kids for the SATs and do that on my own time and and schedule myself and you know so i had a different experience of the the struggle because i wasn't as afraid of not being able to make money if i didn't make it as an actor i probably would have made more money not being an actor you know because acting is piecemeal you have money and then you have no money and then you have money and then you have no money whereas if i had been a professor full time I would always have money. So, um, yeah, it was a little different for me because I, I chose to put myself through this knowing, <laughs> knowing that it wasn't going to be a financial, uh, you know, that, that, that wasn't the reason to do it, that I, I didn't, I didn't have visions of rich and famous dancing in my head. And as a matter of fact, because I had so many rich and famous people in my life, I kind of 
eschewed that. I kind of avoided, I never wanted anybody looking through my trash. I never wanted anybody caring who I dated or, you know, I, I, I just, that's not, I, it, that doesn't interest me that much. I like being a storyteller, but, um, but you know, that whole thing of it being about your personal life being interesting to other people, that wasn't something I wanted to do. Well, let's take that a step further, because here's something that is always, I, I don't know, baffled me or I, I just could never figure it out. To your point about the personal life and that sort of thing, obviously, Richard Dreyfus is a good friend of yours. I'm sure you have many other um, well-known actors and actresses that are friends of yours. I've never understood why the press, the paparazzi, all that sort of stuff wanted to get so involved in somebody's personal life. To your point, who you dated, who you were out on, you know, having coffee with, who you're out on the town with, who you were traveling with and having pictures and that sort of thing. It, it just, it, that, that's somebody's personal life. That, that's not, shouldn't be for public consumption. What's it been well, like for others that, that you know have had to go through that sort of thing? Well, that's one reason that I, it wasn't attractive to me is watching other people go through versions of that. You know, like when you're, when you're going through something in your life, like a breakup, that's really hard. And, and all of us have felt that all of us know what it's like to have your heart broken. Now imagine that you have your heart broken and you are watching them tell the story of your heartbreak. And of course it's all inaccurate. It's all, you know, made up stuff to sell papers and get people to tune into your, you know, TMZ or whatever. And so it's inaccurate stuff, but that doesn't make it feel better. That can make it feel worse because in that moment where you already have lost so much control, you know, you've lost a person that you cared about. You've lost a relationship that you relied on. You've lost, you know, in that moment, whether you were the breakup or the breakup E, you know, you still have lost this thing that was of value. And now other people are gossiping. You know, they're not accurately telling what happened. They're gossiping among themselves about, well, I heard this. Well, I heard that. And so even if you turn off the TV and don't look at the uh, magazines next to the grocery store <laughs> checkout and uh, turn off your phone and, you know, like, I mean, how do you escape that? And even if you did, it's still just in the air. It's in the ether. It's when you when you go out into the world and people look at you at the Rite Aid or whatever, and they're looking at you like, oh, she left you for that other man, you know, like, <laughs> like that's just a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. I've never, I've never felt like that's news. That's personal life. That's, that's not news. Well, um, it's infotainment. It's not news. It's infotainment. And we've always had that. We've always had some version. I mean, now we combine, now we've cut the middleman out and we've just made the gossip, the actual, the show and the gossip are the same thing now, you know, whether it's housewives right. or, or what, you know. Right. Yeah. Laura, along your journey, as you were developing your acting and your writing skills, did you have a mentor, a friend, a family member who was in your corner helping you believe in yourself, believe you could do this when you had moments of doubt about, well, I don't know if I'm going to make it in, in this world that was there helping pump you up and making you believe, you know what, you can do this. 
Well, it's interesting because I had different, uh, the answer, the short answer is yes. I had many people who were encouraging. Um, The more complicated answer is that they were encouraging in a very realistic way. I'm an extreme realist. And, and so, and entering a dreamer's career when you're a realist is, you know, that's, that's, it's a lot. And um, Richard Dreyfus, the first time he ever saw me act, he said, Oh God, I can't watch this. And I said, what? And he goes, I can't watch your career. And I said, why? And he goes, because you're better than 90% of the people I've ever worked with and you're not going to work. Wow. And I said, really? So that that's the kind of encouragement I got, right? Is this very realistic assessment of that I am really good. I'm scary good. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to have, you know, this Julia Roberts type story or whatever. And and what he was talking about is that because I was entering the industry older, because I was focused on the work and not the glamour, um, because I wasn't interested in becoming famous, because I wasn't willing to do anything other than good hard work to get ahead, um, that I was going to, you know, get passed over for a lot of stuff and watch people who weren't as hardworking or as talented or as whatever, get those parts for a variety of different reasons. And, and really one of the biggest handicaps is that I'm just so tall. Is that right? Oh yeah. Five ten, yeah. no good. Um, it's getting less scary to be five ten because now younger people, the men are taller and, and the women, I mean, younger people are taller, but I'm not a younger person anymore. <laughs> so it just helps who I could be the mother of, but it doesn't really, you know, um, it's, 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 it, here's the thing is that there's this bizarre rule in casting that you could cast me as it's easier to picture me as the lesbian Catholic, uh, bride of a black Jewish woman than to cast me with a man shorter than I am. Really? That's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, it's just strange. It's just a strange thing. And it's my whole career. I've noticed this, that it's, that it's just way easier to picture people with anybody but a shorter guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm waiting for the industry to catch up to that. It, it's a little better now, but it also, it got a little better in the eighties once and then it went away, you know? So mm. yeah. So I don't trust this a little bit better. It got, but there are a lot of taller actors now because there are a lot of taller people now in the younger generation. So that's something for the next wave of tall women. <laughs> you mentioned a moment ago about not interested in some of the things you have to do to to get ahead. And, and Hollywood hasn't always been friendly to beautiful young girls trying to get their start in the business. Did you ever have to walk away from something or someone because it became obvious that they wanted more than to have you as part of the movie? Yes, of course, yes. But it's I walked away from more things because of my level in, of interest in being involved in whatever it was selling. So whether it was commercials or whether it was a movie or a TV show, I've walked away from more things for my own 
you know, like back when I could afford to walk away from things because I just didn't want to be a part of them. Um, that was something that I would walk away from a lot was just, I don't want to be part of telling this story. I don't want to be, I don't want to participate in telling this story. Is it better now in, in what, Hollywood or New York or wherever? Because my impression is the Me Too movement and, and some of the other things that maybe being a part of the movie industry is is better than it was back in the 70s and 80s. Because I got to tell you, if, if one of my daughters came to me and said, hey, dad, I want to go to New York or to Hollywood to be an actor, I'd be terrified. Are there more safeguards why. for women now? Um, <clears throat> again, short answer, yes. Uh, more complex answer. We named hundreds and hundreds of men. We named hundreds and hundreds of men. And one guy is in jail. So I'm very impressed that the guy who's in jail is so powerful. You know, I, I did six movies with Harvey Weinstein and I, I can tell you that was the most powerful. I mean, he was my number one employer in my career. And so, you know, that's a big get that they arrested him, but he was just one guy and we named hundreds. 94% of the women surveyed in my union reported having been assaulted at work. Oh my goodness. And they got one guy. Yeah. So, uh, the problem is bigger than we want to deal with. And, and I don't mean we, my industry, I mean, we people. I mean, this is a global problem. All right. So let's switch gears to happier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of that. <laughs> yeah. Quentin Tarantino is obviously one of the great directors of our time or any time, really. He's, you've sure. been in several of his movies. You've directed alongside him. When did you recognize his brilliance and what was it like to, to see a movie developing through his eyes? Well, first of all, I think we all, the first time you recognize his brilliance is probably the first time you saw a Tarantino movie. I mean, didn't we all have the jaw dropping moment of, oh, my God, what is this I'm watching? You know, whether your first movie was Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction or however you came to him. Um, didn't we all have that experience of like, what is this? <laughs> you know? Where you just realize there's a new voice on the scene and there's a new way of telling stories that's emerging and it's exciting and cool and fun. And, you know. I think he's the Shakespeare of our time because he takes the, you know, he takes on giant themes and makes them um, very relatable to Joe guy on the street kind of world, you know? So I think he, um, I think he's truly gifted. And, and when you work with him, um, his enthusiasm and love for filmmaking is so infectious that it, it just captures everybody. And it, it makes it a lot easier. He, he's very demanding as a di director. I mean, you work really long hours and it's, it's rough, but he keeps everyone so enthusiastic and reminds us constantly how blessed we are to be doing what we do for a living. And I don't mean reminds us like, you should be grateful. I mean, reminds us, like, shows us how much more fun this is than, like, doing a job with a plastic name tag. Or, you know, like, he rem he reminds us because we are having such an amazing time that it's like, oh, yeah, I love this. 
So that's very different about working with him. And and seeing movie making through his eyes is fascinating. You know, uh, one of my favorite things to talk about with him has always been movie making and storytelling in general, because he knows the history of history as far as like, you know, history is his story. It's a story. And he knows how stories become permanent parts of our experience. And it's, it, he, he gets it. He gets how to, how to join in on that and become part of the permanent record. One of my son's all-time favorite movies is one of your great movies that you were a part of with him, and that's Django Unchained. Oh, yeah. The movie is off the charts great. The casting is amazing. And I heard that he actually wrote your part with you in mind. Is that is that right? He did. If you read the script, um, when I read it, I was floored. Um, because I was just reading, a, I, I used to give him notes. Uh, he has a group of people who um, give him notes on his scripts. And I used to be part of that group. And so when I received the script, um, I thought he wanted notes on it. It didn't have any letter with it or whatever. It just was, it just arrived. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just tell him notes. And so I'm on like page 92 or something when I, finally this character shows up. And when I read the line, it's like, my name is Laura Lynn Cayouette, And it says, Laura Lee Candy Fitzwilly, a tall, uh, strawberry, attractive, strawberry blonde, <laughs> Southern Belle. And I'm like, wait, what? And, and I reread it. I, I think my age was in there. Like it had all these different markers that I was like, wait a minute, what? And I reread it over and over going, just that sentence, that little phrase, that description and going, wait a minute. And I still didn't know if, it, if the part was going to be mine until months and months later, months and months later. Um, he, I auditioned and everything like a regular person, but, um, but yes, he did. I was the muse for the part. So it is right that I got it. You also did an episode of Friends, the one with the screamer, Ben Stiller, yes. in that episode as well. What was it like being a part of an episode of Friends? Well, it was kind of the most possible exciting time ever in the history of that show. Because as you may remember, they formed a six-person union and demanded equal pay for all six of them. Right. Okay. So they had just one a week before I got there. Oh my. Yeah. So I am walking onto a set where the bosses have just gone through a gargantuan negotiation with the actors and the actors are now empowered in this brand new way as a group. And so it was a fascinating power dynamic. It was a it was a fascinating experience to be on a set during that moment and and feel what it's like when when you give the actors some power when you give the actors the the right to own their own image and the right you know like that that it was i don't know it was pretty great it was pretty exciting because they were very energetic and very excited and very um more invested in ever than making sure it was a great show because they felt like ownership over it you know You've also got an opportunity to work a couple of different times with Woody Harrelson. Oh, yes. 
He's one of my favorite actors. I started watching him just like the rest of us did on Cheers as Woody Boyd. And then all the way through uh, his his acting career. What was it like being on uh, on stage, if you will, or in movies with Woody Harrelson? Um, Two different times. So two different ways. The first time we worked together, I had met him uh, at Sundance. Uh, I was with Quentin when we were taking Hellride, the movie that we had produced together, mm-hmm. to Sundance. And it was Quentin's return to Sundance for the first time. And so it was a very exciting time for Sundance because Quentin had never been back since when he was launched. And so we're walking, we walked into some nightclub and there's Woody and they had beef because Woody had been in Natural Born Killers and Quentin had taken his name off of the script of that movie because he was so unhappy with the way Oliver Stone had directed it and retold his story in a way that was not at all as he had intended. And so, um, so there was always like a little bit of negativity between the two of them. And so I was there when they like worked that out. And so when I saw Woody on set at Now You See Me, I reminded him that I had been there that evening and he was a little distant. And I couldn't tell if that was because he knew that I'm like Team Quentin or, you know, like, like, I don't know what it was coming from, but he, he was sort of or maybe it was because he knew that I suddenly knew more about him than he knew about me or you know what I mean? Like, yeah. The power dynamic was a little off for him because I'm supposed to be there as a, you know, a little bit part and he's there as a star. Uh, who knows? I don't know him well enough to know what was going through his head that day, but he was a little bit like nervous of me, I think, a little standoffish toward me. And then when we did True Detective to get together, he, I, I swear it was like long lost friend. He could not have been happier to be reunited. We had a really fun day together. We ate lunch together. We had a, such a terrific time because then he knew I was who I was and I wasn't going to sell his story or, do, you know, like, look, you asked earlier about fame. It, it, it's a lot. Fame does a lot to people and it, and it puts big distances between you and trust, you know? And look, I am only, I'm telling you something that was minute. He, I'm sure in his experience, he wasn't standoffish. He was absolutely delightful that first day. He just (laughs) wasn't warm. And the second day he was warm. You know, when we did True Detective, he was warm. And I think that's because he knew me and he knew I wasn't going, I wasn't after anything and I wasn't going to tell anybody anything. That he could talk to me and I was, I'm safe. Let's go in a little bit different direction. As we've talked through the conversation, you moved from L.A. to New Orleans. And I read that your family roots are actually there going all the way back to the 1700s. Talk about that. Well, my family has been in the United States since before it was the United States. My family came over in 1632 and on my dad's side. And then on my mom's side, they came over in the 1700s. And at some point, they all migrated southward. And um, as a matter of fact, somewhere along the line, my mother's family and my father's family married a different time. And so I'm actually related to myself. (laughs) (laughs) I am my own some kind of cousin. But uh, but in any case, 
So they migrated southward and eventually um, one branch of the family got here to New Orleans and and then left. They were here for some time and then left. And so we had family all throughout Louisiana, you know, because they left pieces as they came down through. And uh, and then family in Texas. I I know that um, there are people I don't know, but who I know I'm blood related to in Alabama and also in Georgia. But I don't know those people. I just know they're out there. But uh, but my family is majority Texas and Louisiana, mostly Louisiana. Laura, on the football side of the podcast that I do, I do a show called Thursday Night Tailgate, and we always dedicate a segment of the show. Uh, we call it our spotlight on the positive because most media outlets focus on the negative things players do. We try to focus on the positive things that players are out there doing in their communities. And you're giving back to the New Orleans community in a lot of ways. Talk about giving back to the city you love while you're enjoying all that it has to offer. Oh, gosh. You know, it, it makes me so not special here because it's so the way this city works. The way New Orleans works is that all of us give back. And that's how this place recovers from things like Katrina and Ida. And it's how we manage to have um, our attitude toward every single problem is, okay, well, there must be some way to celebrate this. You know, so that wheel of giving back is so ingrained in the culture here. Um, when you go to high school here locally, you have to do community hours in order to graduate. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and that's true of every high school student in the city. So, um, you know, it it's just part of how this city works. So, for example, I, I one thing I do is I'm a pussyfooter dancer and I dance with the pussyfooters, a, a group um, of women over 30. There are over a hundred of us and we wear head to toe pink. We wear like pink wigs and corsets and white combat boots. And um, we uh, it's a burlesque inspired sort of look. And we were inspired by the baby dolls, which is an even older organization that started in 1912. Um, and the Pussyfooters started a new wave of adult dance troops in uh, the Mardi Gras parades. And so now there are over 50 adult dance troops that parade in the Mardi Gras parades. So that's one thing the Pussyfooters have contributed. And what we do is we dance in the Mardi Gras parades and Christmas and all that stuff, you know, uh, Halloween, name a, name a thing we celebrate, we dance in those parades. But we also do over 50 community events per year where we participate, our nonprofit participates with other nonprofits. Um, and then we have our own blush ball that raises money. Uh, this year we raised over $50,000 for domestic violence abuse victims. Um, so that's something that I do that is, you know, fun for me. Yes, it's a lot of work. It's a big commitment, um, but it's very fun for me. It's an incredible group of women um, that give me this sisterhood. And, uh, and then there's just no feeling like, there's no better way to see the city from than from the inside of a parade, making everybody smile as you go. It's just amazing. So that's one way I give back. And I, I'm also directing a documentary uh, about over-tourism, which is a mathematical equation of when the amount of people visiting a tourist place 
so overwhelms the amount of people living in that place that it becomes unsustainable. Uh, so my film is focused on the French Quarter and overtourism. The French Quarter has less than 4,000 residents and it has over 19.75 million visitors every year. Wow. So that's, yeah, that is five times worse than Venice, Italy, which is the one most people have heard of. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm working on that. I, I have been a union rep for my SAG local, uh, my union local. I, um, I don't know. I have a long list, <laughs> really long list. <laughs> I just went to a community meeting last night. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I love this city. I'm also a, uh, Saints ticket holder and a Pelicans ticket holder. <clears throat> and, um, love doing that as well. So I, you know, there's a lot of ways that I participate in my city. We also attend a lot of the festivals, et cetera, et cetera. But like every festival, the, the money often goes back into the community or into local businesses. I mean, everything we do is somehow helping somebody here. And when it doesn't, it's a bummer. So let's, let's expand your reach a little bit because you're also giving back by you share acting tips, auditioning tips, working on setup tips, networking, all those sorts of things on your YouTube channel. So you're giving back to the larger acting community and people just in general with the things you do there. Talk about that. Well, and my, my book was really about that too. You know, I, when I wrote my, when I wrote no small parts, I, I wrote it because it was the book I kept searching for and never found. And when I was working on Django, I had a lot of the same downtime as the um, people playing the house slaves who were predominantly locals and uh, were just starting out in acting or were curious about acting. And they had a lot of questions and they would try and answer each other's questions, but they were all like the blind leading the blind. So I would overhear these conversations and I would poke in and say, well, actually, if you do this or actually you should call this person or, well, you know, send me your stuff. I'll get it to this place or what. And I was able to facilitate all these people getting further down the road as actors. And so that's what made me realize, you know what? I have all this wealth of information, all these people who have exposed me to so many things and taught me so many things. And I, 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 I need to pay it forward. I need to, I can't be where all that information stops. You know, like I have wisdom from Kevin Costner and Lou Diamond Phillips and, you know, Dennis Christopher and, you know, like all these people, Joanna Cassidy, Danica McKellar, you know, like I have all these people in my head who have taught me things, Diane Franklin and whatever, you know, it doesn't matter who there's like a, just even being on the set with people like Gene Hackman, Shirley MacLaine, you know, I have worked with so many Academy Award winners and people who've been part of this culture for decades and they, their wisdom got passed to me and I have no children. So I feel like if I don't teach, if I don't write a book about it, if I don't, you know, pay it forward and pass it on, then they invested poorly because I was never going to use it to become rich and famous. So you know, I, I feel like responsible for all the information that came my way. Laura, a couple more before I let you go. And if I did the math right earlier, you and I are roughly the same age. I was born in 1965. You are in 
fantastic shape, which I know <laughs> isn't easy to do. And I'm guessing more difficult for you than a lot of us because you're in a great city full of fantastic restaurants and wonderful uh, food. How yeah. do you do it? Well, first of all, our food is outstanding. And so if somebody serves me something that isn't outstanding, I am easily going to be able to say, mm, I've had enough. <laughs> 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 but, um, but no, to be honest with you, uh, I'm, I'm one of those everything in moderation, including moderation type believers. Um, I, I, I hate to sound really boring, but the truth is you eat right and exercise. And so what that means to me is different than what it means to other body types or other people or other ages. But for me, it means I, I, I eat all day, but I never eat, you know, more than I need. Um, so I, I eat all, a lot throughout the day, but I don't just sit and eat a bunch. I, I eat probably three or four meals and then snacks. Um, so I just keep myself fueled up, but I don't eat more than I need to get through my day. And uh, same with exercise. I, I just do bare minimum. I, I walk um, a few times a week. I stretch uh, for like a, 45 minutes to an hour twice a week. I lift weights with my arms a couple times a week I, and I work with a Pilates bar maybe once a week and that's pretty much it. Like I don't, I don't belong to a gym. I don't, you know, I just, I think what I believe in is non-extremism, like just in general, you know, I don't think it's healthy to go on crash diets or, um, you know, suddenly, you know, ramp up your exercise to an unsustainable amount or, you know, I, I think just little changes here and there have always worked for me. Laura, something else that I want to get your thoughts on is someone that's near and dear to, I think to both of our hearts and that's big mama, Reverend Brenda Franklin. Oh, uh, <laughs> I love the picture of you holding her sopping sauce. She's fantastic. So supportive. What a supportive person. Yeah, she's she's wonderful. What'd you think of the sauce? Delicious. No, I mean, have you had it? I have. It's <laughs> it's fantastic. I when I run out, I'm sad. I got to get more. Yeah. No, and she's very generous. Uh, no, she's wonderful. I think she's one of the kindest people because she really makes a point of being supportive. And I know that she does it in a way that makes me feel special. But then I look around and see that she makes a lot of people feel special. Like that's her gift. That's right. Yeah. By the way, back to the whole body conscious thing. I would yeah. I say that the movie I just did, you know, you and I had planned a different schedule and I had to delay. And the movie that I just did that pulled me out of town was um, I played the part of a femme fatale and all the rest of the women in the movie are half my age. And I'm the one that's in the sexy dress doing the sexy dance. Wow. There you <laughs> go. I thought, well, you know, at this age, it becomes political to own that, you know, like I've had no work done. I've had no, you know, like, so if, if this is still, I think it's important to, in America, um, exhibit that women can be like fine wine here as well, not just in England, not just in, you know, other countries where women are allowed to age on film. I think it's important to show that, um, you know, more of the Susan Sarandons and the, you know, the women who, 
managed to hang on to their sex appeal. And it isn't about being a youthful beauty. Now, why is that political? Um, Because we're so told not to like ourselves this way. We're so told that we're not enough and uh, that we're supposed to, you know, spend some money or some time or some effort nipping things, tucking things, burning things, you know, with acid, uh, getting things sewn or tighten. You know, I don't know, doing stuff. We're supposed to do a bunch of stuff to ourselves. Plumping. Is Is it still that way? Do you still feel that pressure? I think that's sad. Um, I will tell you that I don't feel it because I live in New Orleans. So I I just don't get the jobs. But if I were to live in L.A., I would I would be told to my face why I'm not getting the job. That right. But that's OK. I, there's always going to be jobs for every kind of face. And mine is evolving. And, um, you know, I I am. I am never I've never fit a type because there's not really (laughs) there's not really a type of mom or grandmother or whatever age I'm going into next uh, that has this, you know, five foot, 10, 120 pound thing going. So I don't know what the future holds for me as an actor, because there's not a whole lot of, you know, that's not really the number one thing people cast (laughs) is. Women of a certain age who held on to their figures. So that's why I do think that um, that if we had more women showing, like Michelle Yeoh. Michelle Yeoh is now the most powerful female actor in Hollywood. She's a 60-year-old woman who, you know, has allowed herself to age naturally. And I think it's super exciting and, yes, political that it would be that she would be a big star right now. Um, I think that's really cool that the guys who wrote that movie asked themselves, what if we put our mom in the matrix? You know, I obviously that I knew that was a, a big deal, you know, back in the day, you know, whether that was in the seventies, eighties, nineties, I had hoped that we had gotten past that. Now that things had changed a little bit because women of a certain age or of, of people in my age or and older and younger, they're all beautiful. It, it it didn't need to be a that every leading actress was twenty five or thirty five. That it was 35? okay. Are you nuts? That's so old. <laughs> so no, it is a problem still. It's a problem still. But but it is it's evolving. I wouldn't say it's changing yet, but it's evolving. It's it's um, you know what the the new kinds of casting that we have now is there's a lot more people of color involved in our casting now there's a lot and on both ends i mean behind the scenes and also in front of the camera there's a lot more um people who are uh gender non specific or um trans or identify publicly as gay or you know like there's a lot of things that have definitely evolved in casting and there's entire shows now like pose oh my god what an amazing show pose was and pose the entire cast was pretty much gay and trans it was amazing so there are things that are evolving and changing it's just that 52 percent of the population is female and i I feel like that that's still waiting in line for the big first Laura, before I let you go, you mentioned the film you just did and the one that you're directing and 
and your books. Let our listeners know how they can find you, see you, read your stuff, and then follow you online and on social media. Well, you can always get my books on Amazon, uh, except for the Writing Unblocked ebook. That one is best to get through my website, which is laurakayuette.com. And which also has links to my Pinterest and my Facebook and my Twitter. Oh, and I have to add my Instagram. I just on Boneface, the movie I just did, um, the the people I worked with finally, finally, finally convinced me to join Instagram. So I'm now on Instagram as well. And I'll put the I'll make sure I update my website to include that link. But yes, now I'm on Instagram as the Laura Cayouette because there was already an actual Laura Cayouette in Canada and then a fake Laura Cayouette who says she's in Django and I don't know who she is. Oh, so, so I am the Laura Cayouette. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, it's been so wonderful getting to spend some time with you. You're a real treat and I can't thank you enough for your time. I hope uh, we get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime not too far from now. Well, thank you very much. And um, I don't know if uh, if a lot of your are, are a lot of your listeners storytellers. Is that something that is in your group? Indeed. Absolutely. They are. Well, I believe everybody has stories to tell. And I believe that everybody should figure out how to tell those stories instead of going up to unsuspecting writers saying you should write my story. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. No, but I mean, seriously, like my mom is going to be 83 this year and we have, I have browbeaten her into writing her own life story and we're now adding photos to it as a family project. And I'm so grateful that she has written this down because um, she started it a couple of years ago and last year she had a health problem where she, uh, we are very blessed that she is still here. And so it's more important to me now than ever to make sure that that story is recorded for all history, that, you know, my mom's version of herself is recorded for all history. And I'm trying to get my dad to do it. I, I want everybody to do it. I want the whole planet to do it. I want us to all not just put posts on social media saying this is where I ate food Wednesday, but to actually say, this is who I am and how I experienced it. Or this is what I saw that interested me and is somebody else's story, but it, I found it fascinating. Or this is, you know, whatever stories you want to tell, but just tell them. So in that case, um, I can give your uh, listeners a 20% off coupon on the Writing on Block book. Nice. Yes. That's I fantastic. Give you a coupon code. We'll call it um, Golf Podcast. Two words, Golf podcast all capital letters all right thank you so much for that we will i'll certainly post that as a part of the the notes to this show but uh, that's very generous of you i appreciate that very much well you're very welcome i really you know i'm not a i'm not at all a person who's like religious about things like i can save you but this this is one thing where because it took me 20 years to write my first book and then I wrote five books in four years. I am convinced I can save you. I can save you <laughs> a lot of time, a lot of confusion, a lot of just banging your head on the wall going, how do you do this? Because I did all that already and figured it all out. And I came through on the other side with this like easy, fun system of like, oh, okay, I get how you do it. So yeah, so I, I'm, I do feel like I feel like I want everybody to have access to that. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for your time. 
And like I say, I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime soon. Oh, sure. This has been delightful. Thank you. Take care, Lara. All the best to you and your family. Like I say, we'll catch up soon. Thank you. That is the wonderful Laura Cayouette. C-A-Y-O-U-E-T-T-E is the spelling of her last name. And what a treat to get to spend nearly an hour with Laura talking about her career. And we know she's a great actress. We know she's a wonderful writer. But I think what we just learned over this time is that she is a 10 times better person than she is an, an actor or a writer. And again, she's fantastic at both of those things. Be sure to take her up on her offers for discount on her books. Learn how to write uh, your own story. I think that's fantastic that she's getting her mom to do that. And now she's helping all of us do that as well. What a wonderful treat to spend that time with her. Hopefully we get that privilege to do it again soon. Again, give her a follow on Instagram at the Laura Cayuette at no small parts on Twitter and then on our website, lauracayuette.com. She's fantastic, folks. You heard it. And hopefully, like I say, we get to do it again with her very soon. All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this special episode of Next on the T. My thanks to Laura Coyote for her time and all of you for being the greatest listeners in the history of podcasting. Until next time, hit them straight, my friends.